Well, good afternoon. Um, I'd like to start in a sort of very Brazilian way with some acknowledgments and a few apologies. I want to thank, of course, the University of Oxford, Torch, and the Mellon Foundation for having made it possible for me to speak in this, well, almost mythical place in the history of social anthropology. And thanks in particular to the people involved in making so, in making this so. Ramon Sarro, Elizabeth Ewart, David Gellner, Neil Armstrong, and of course, to all of you. And now the apologies. First, to, to, this, to, to the very same people for all the work and annoyance I, I have caused and still am causing to them. So, Second, for my very, very clumsy English, despite a very competent translation and revision by Philippe Villani and Julia Salma. And this leads me to tell you that, uh, I generally say this to my Anglophone students, that when I speak Portuguese, I don't look as stupid I will probably look today. I sincerely hope you can forgive me, and if there is anything you don't understand or I cannot make clear, please just let me know, okay? Uh, I'll, try to, I'll begin my presentation with a sort of brief, brief presentation uh, about the nature of so-called Afro-Brazilian religions that I have been researching for a long, long time, and that provides the inspiration for this talk, that it's not directly about them, but the inspiration comes from them. Next, I will try to present a brief overview of the field of studies of these uh, uh, religions over 150 years, more or less. I will sustain that this field is marked by a fundamental social political concern, how to imagine a nation composed of so many differences. Concern, which is the reason why the topics of syncretism and miscegenation ocup occupy such a central place in that field. And finally, based on a contrast between the dominant theories on these themes and those we can find in groups we study, I will try to present rather abruptly my current position on the role of anthropology and of the studies of Afro-Brazilian religions in this debate. I feel that a last apology is still necessary for the non-conclusive and somewhat abstract nature of this presentation. I know this is always a problem in Britain and in, in British social anthropology, so forgive me. And also for not being sure that what I will present to you is really part of this Anthropology of the Controversial, the seminar series seeks to explore. Anyway, you can decide. So uh, the Afro-Brazilian religion called Candomblé was the very first topic I studied as an anthropologist. As you certainly know, Afro-American religion as a whole were born like jazz in the beautiful formulation of Felix Guattari, I quote him, from a chaosmic, catastrophic descent, the enslavement of the black populations on the North and South American continents, end of quote. So those religion, these religions are one of the results of multiple and, of multiple and creative processes of re-territorialization which sprang up in the wake of the brutal, brutal deterritorialization of millions of people from Africa to work as slaves in America. The exact number is quite controversial, but it is likely that over a period of 300 years, almost 10 million people were shipped from Africa to the Americas. Of them, about 4, millions, 4 million arrived in what today is called Brazil, where, as we know, 10 million indigenous people were already living, future victims of a genocide that along with the African diaspora has underpinned the constitution of the modern world. This is a history that we all share, a history in which deadly powers and life forces exist side by side. In the context of this harrowing experience, the combination of different aspects from African, Amerindian, and European systems of thought religious practice and social forms gave rise to new cognitive, perceptive, affective, and organizational configurations. This new situation, therefore, meant the recomposition of apparently lost existential territories on fresh grounds, along with the development of subjectivities linked to different forms of resistance against dominant forces. To use a beautiful expression of Philippe Pinard and Isabelle Stangers, the question has always been, and I quote them, to become capable once again of inhabiting the devastated zones of experience, end of quote. From this point of view, the only difference between jazz and Afro-American religions is that until now, 
the latter has not influenced high Western culture in the way jazz has. But I like to believe that my own work, and of some other people, of course, involves a sort of wager on this possibility. Afro-American religion is thus an expression that, roughly speaking, designates a heterogeneous, though articulated, set of religious practices and concepts, whose main lines, whose, whose main lines of force were brought to the Americas by African enslaved people. Throughout history, they have incorporated, to a greater or lesser degree, elements of indigenous cosmologies and practices, as well as popular Catholicism and European spiritualism. These elements were transformed as they were combined, and combined as they were transformed, generating a great number of religions variants that seem very similar when looked at from a certain distance, and very different when looked at from another distance. My ethnographic work deal, deals with one of these variants called Candomblé. In this religion, followers tend to classify their temples, or terreros, that's the word you read. Uh, they, they tend to classify their temples uh, in nations, as they say, derived, uh, derived from their founders' different African origins. There are differences between temples belonging to distinct nations, but there are also variations between those that classify themselves as belonging to the same nation. Likewise, likewise there are many and diverse possible combinations between nations. Candomblé is mainly an, uh, an, urban, an urban phenomenon. Uh, a temple, or terreiro, can function more or less like a church where followers meet only on the occasion for, of religious ceremonies, but it can also be a sort of community uh, where a core of related people live and where many more come whenever there are religious ceremonies. Each temple is headed by a priest or priestess called a saint father. It's difficult to translate it to English, but some people traduce father, father in saint. Others say saint father, or saint mother, or mother in saint. Uh, well, and besides them, a lot, of, uh, a great number of different ritual experts. Beyond the empirical diversity of temples, there are common elements, of course. The clearest one is the existence of divinities that during specific ceremonies possess followers who have been previously prepared for that. This preparation consists in a complex set of rituals and a relatively long initiation process that comprises offerings and animal sacrifices. Although it is not always the case, candomblé groups are often recognized among the other religions. <coughs> as, uh, they are recognized as such precisely because they adopt such sacrifices, such animal sacrifices, which, uh, which now became a very big problem in Brazil because protests of uh, Pentecostalists on one hand and ecologists on the other, or together. Anyway, we can talk about this later. Well, <clears throat> in Candomblé, people also practice a more elaborate initiation process and draw, um, and this is important, and draw a marked distinction between divinities, ancestral spirits, and the spirits of the dead in general. Another remarkable aspect of Candomblé lies in the fact that the divinities exist both at what we or they call a generic level, uh, where the divinities exist in a finite number and since the beginning of times. But also they exist as an intensive multiplicity of individual or personal divinities. Those, those personal indiv uh, uh, divinities are, that's a local uh, native expression, they are made in the process of religious initiation. From birth, Everyone belongs to a divinity, but only some of us will be called to initiation, and only in that moment will we find our personal divinity. In other words, general divinities are, to use a, an anthropological vocabulary, uh, general divinities are given, individual ones are made, and they are made at the same time as the persons that they will possess. Uh, the very complex process, this very complex process of initiation is known precisely with the expression making the saint or making the head. So that is making the, 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 the personal divinity and making the person as such, the saint and the, and the head. 
And through this process, one becomes the son or daughter uh, of a certain divinity and of, at the same time, of a certain priest or priestess. The saint mother, the saint father, and then have the, the saint daughter or the saint uh, son. At the same time, this personal divinity is seated uh, on a special altar, and this altar and this divinity seated there is the person's double. So the divinity is seated on your head, and the divinity is seated on an altar, and the altar in your head becomes a double, one of the other, okay? Uh, the first temple I studied as an anthropologist was on the outskirts of Rio de Janeiro. At the beginning of the, of the 80s, long ago, my investigation moved to another temple in Ilhéus, precisely that city. It's a medium-sized town in the south coast of the state of Bahia in northeastern Brazil. Uh, after studying Candomblé for some time, I stopped and I dedicated myself first to the history of anthropological thought and then to the anthropology of politics. I published the book, and after I published that book, I decided to return my attention to Candomblé in the same city of Ilhéus with the same people I was working for a long time. I mean, the investigation about politics was also with them. And uh, in the same temple, which is named, I think I have to, to say it, Terreiro de Matamba Tombensi Neto, under the guidance of Dona Yusa Dona Rodrigues, the saint mother, to whom I owe the little I know about Candomblé. Well, yeah, I'll return to this at the end, okay? Uh, after 20 years away from the studies of Afro-Brazilian religions, it was with some surprise that I realized that the so-called intellectual field had not changed much, and that the mainstream narrative on its history was still more or less the same than when I, st when I started studying it. Uh, this mainstream, this mainstream nar narrative argues that these studies are to be divided into, to be divided into supposedly well-defined phases. Firstly, an evolutionist or historicist or culturalist phase situated more or less between the end of the 19th century and the mid-70s, in which authors are said to be concerned with discovering African survivals. Uh, through the description of the cult system, the ritual objects, symbols, and myths. Uh, and this vision is generally known as internal, as an internal visual or, or internalist vision. Later on came one of those turns we sometimes have in anthropology, exactly under the influence of British social anthropology, precisely. I would say from Oxford, actually. Arguing from the mid-70s, the mid that these rites, myths, and symbols should be analyzed as an expression of concrete contemporary social relations and not as the survival of a, of a more or less remote past. And this vision is generally known as external or externalist. This dualism is actually not very surprising, of course, and so far we all know how it tends to pervade all fields in anthropology. I would only add, in passing, that in the study of African-American religion, uh, religions, that this supposed opposition between internal and external views acquires a somewhat special character to the extent that these religions are open to everybody, including researchers. So internal and external means something quite different in this case, of course. I do not have the time here to talk about what it seems to me a very interesting problems, the very interesting problems that this feature raises for anthropological practice and to the way it is described. I mean, the possibility always on uh, uh, that you can convert or you can enter those religions. Uh, what I would like to emphasize is that this way of telling, this dualistic way of telling the history of Afro-Brazilian studies has consequences for its own practice because it establishes a type of dangerous theoretical great divide. If older authors, in spite of their evolutionism and even racism, still believed in the possibility and value of an intrinsic analysis of the system, this does not appear to happen any longer from the 70s onwards. After this great divide, one group of researchers began to limit themselves to the detailed description of the system under investigation, sometimes going so far 
as to argue for the impossibility of any theoretical study uh, that did not violate their richness and specificity. And even the need for a religious initiation so as to be able to speak of these religions. On the other side, another group of authors started to dedicate themselves exclusively to studies of a sociological or micropolitical character. Social dramas, webs of accusations, religious official associations, and so on. That is, they seem to be interested only in the connections between these religions and phenomena understood as external or inclusive without asking, or at sometimes even rejecting, the question of their specificity and systematic character. However, I think there is something common to so-called internalists and externalists, in spite of the differences. And I think this something in common is their equally excessive respect for history. Both tend to conceive of Afro-Brazilian religions as beings immersed in a historicity that, that, that does not belong to them. In this sense, the only thing left for these religions and their practic practitioners is to either resist this, uh, this external temporal flow remaining unchanged or more, or, or more often slowly degrading until they disappear, or adapting to it undergoing transformations that only echo the more fundamental changes of so-called wider society. This seems to me a sort of self-fulfilling procedure that situates Afro-Brazilian religions in a history that is external to them, to subsequently reduce their study to the revelation of their supposed place in this previously fixed history. However, if we accept, with Deleuze and Guattari, and I quote, that all history does is to translate a, coex a coexistence of becomings into a succession, that everything coexists in perpetual interaction, and that it is necessary to sidestep history and take into account this coexistence of elements, this frame of reference can undergo uh, a serious change. Historical events could also, can also be understood uh, as the actualization of intensive and molecular virtualities in perpetual becomings. For this reason, internalism and externalism are not enough, since if, from a historical or molar point of view, everything can really be external or internal, from a virtual or molecular point of view, one can never say one thing or the other. As Deleuze Guattari also wrote, what we make history what we make history with is the matter of a becoming, not the matter of a history. I have the hypothesis that the strongest drive to the study of Afro-Brazilian religions has always come from something Roger Bastide made explicit in formulating this beautiful question in 1960. Why then are there always condomblés? In other words, I believe that the motivation for these studies always came from a certain surprise, uncertainty, or shock at something difficult to understand and indeed a little mysterious. The fact that against all odds, this religion simply continue to exist. This means that the same kind of mystery that obsessed authors as Nina Rodriguez in 1900 why and how Candomblé survives, are still relevant in some, in some way to this day. Why does Candomblé not transform itself once and for all into Christianity, scientific spiritualism, <coughs> or secularism, depending on the taste of each? Or why does it not dissipate into the corrupted, simplified, or libertarian form which, which Bastide called, but Bastide himself called, not without a certain contempt, black magic, what is called in Brazil, macumba. Of course, modern authors could not formulate the problem in these terms, which they would rather use as instrument of accusation against their predecessors. Still, writing in a period, the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, where African-Brazilian religions seem to be undergoing a process of growth and expansion, the authors that began to study this topic in the 1970s were tempted to make a virtue of necessity. If the mystery 
consisted, consisted in understanding the coexistence of these religions with processes of modernization, and if it is no longer possible to, to apply concepts such as survival, nothing better than to turn modernization into the cause of this permanence, and even the, de the, de the, de and even the de development, the development of these religions. In a nutshell, for older or modern authors, what seems disturbing in Afro-Brazilian religions is their how do you say resilience? Resilient is their resilience, their capacity to resist. Older authors uh, did that using this notion of survival. Modern authors, I would say, changed this to the notion of adaptation. And actually, survival and adaptation may be the two older and uh, always existent uh, categories in anthropological thought. We are always moving with different variations from one to the other and coming back. Anyway, uh, but I would like to I would like to use this term of resistance. Uh, I know they. It is taken by some as uh, sort of outdated or something like that. I, I, I wanted to use it in, the, in a very uh, uh, precise sense and quite counterintuitive. It's a sense proposed by François Zourabichvili, a uh, French philosopher, uh, and that proposes that resistance is not exactly a reaction to a previous force, but as something connected, I quote him, to a will coming from the event and which is nourished by the intolerable. In this micropolitical, molecular sense, resistance is always first. That's why it's sort of counterintuitive. Resistance is always first in relation to repressions and captures. In so far as power can only try to impose itself against forms of life, vital forces, forms of creativity that struggle from the beginning to persevere in their being. Well, if we follow this line of resistance rather than reaction, uh, I think we must admit that those older, the, the, the older authors accused of culturalism or historicism not only were deeply interested in broader social political questions, but also that these questions were the real drive for their work. This has been the case since Nina Rodriguez trying to understand at the turn of the 20th century if Africans in Brazil, as, they called, as he called them, uh, were able to integrate into Brazilian society from him to Roger Bastide already in the 60s, uh, exploring this fascinating question of what happens to a system of beliefs and values that loses its sociological roots. At least in Brazil, the social sciences were born around 150 years ago around two connected themes that in a way still continue to be the focus of our debates, the questions of miscegenation and syncretism. Uh, this term, in these terms, are, at least in Brazil, they are generally applied mainly to black people and to Afro-Brazilian religions. Uh, if the first, term, uh, the first term, miscegenation, uh, has generally been used for processes understood as biological, and the second for phenomena said to be cultural, there is a sort of notorious formulation by Vanina Rodriguez that draws our attention to the problematic character of these boundaries. Nina Rodriguez wrote that syncretism is miscegenation of the spirit. It, 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 is also well known, it, it is also well known that since their birth in the 19th century, when African religions were their very first object, the social sciences in Brazil focused on this phenomena, miscegenation and syncretism, uh, against, the bre the, against the background of problems connected to the so-called so nation building. It is in this context that both syncretism and miscegenation were conceived either as obstacles to overcome to the for the constitution of a national identity required by this nation-building process, or as cultural particularities uh, that, to the contrary, could allow the elaboration of an original but legitimate form of identity and nation. It would be obviously absurd to ignore the reality of the interactions between individuals and groups who took part in this historical process, which I think is possibly the greatest transoceanic migration in history. However, it is quite remarkable that an event of this scope has received not little, not little attention, of course, but a certain kind of attention that 
by adopting dominant perspectives, ended up completely disregarding how the event was conceived of beyond these perspectives. I mean, from the, do from the, from the dominated perspectives. And also, what I would like, uh, 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 disregarding also what I, I would like to call the transcendental dimension of the phenomenon. That is, the fact that it was not only determined by particular historical circumstances, but it was, above all, determinant for everything that took place after it. What should be pointed out here is the fact that these interactions between different peoples always tended to be interpreted as a problem for the country's constitution as a nation state. As a nation state. And it was in this key that the question was thought, especially from the first half of the 19th century, uh, alongside, with the, uh, alongside with the country's independence, when the role of the mixed population uh, in the construction of, of what Brazil was to, be, was, was to become began to be considered. Further, what is valid for so-called miscegenation is also true for so-called syncretism. Here, it was also a sociopolitical issue that seems to have pulled the trigger that fired Brazilian social sciences in the 19th century how to build a nation when a significant part of its people were thought, by, were thought of by intellectuals and elites to be primitive, black or indigenous, in contrast to what they called white European civilized society, uh, of which, of course, these intellectuals and elites believe themselves to be a part. Uh, since at least the mid-19th century, the question of the assimilation of indigenous people was the focus of these intellectuals' concerns. And starting from the 1870s, uh, also, uh, also the, the question of black people. But it was especially with Nina Rodriguez, the end of the 19th century, that this theme beca became uh, the object of an investigation with scientific ambitions. Its central problem has always been the so-called integration of the Afro-Brazilian population in society after the abolition of slavery in, in 1888. And the fact that Brazil was the last Western country to abolish slavery is something that should always be remembered. As one of the authors, Silvio Romero, wrote in this horrendous passage, and I quote, the Negro is not only an economic machine. He is, first of all, an spite, and in spite of his ignorance, an object of science. This is sort of founding of the Brazilian social sciences, end of quote. Well. Uh, as it is very well known, theories of miscegenation always have a racialist basis. But nationalist ideologies claiming that a single nation should have a single language spoken by a single people favored another meaning that, while maintaining a racialist basis, is somewhat different. Affirming that miscegenations with whites would elevate the mental level of the mixed population in comparison with blacks, selective immigration policies with a supposedly scientific basis were implemented to favor the entry of Europeans into Brazil. In, in, uh, yeah. This was an explicit policy of whitening Brazilian population, based on ideas about the intellectual inferiority of blacks and the degeneration of mixed individuals. This whitening policy affirmed a, 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 a hierarchy based on phenotypic traces, such as skin color, facial shape, and hair texture aiming to favor the demographic decline of the layers of the population understood to be inferior and allowing the co-optation of the mixed ones. Between more or less 1880 and 1930, this was the historical, political, ideological, and scientific context in which a series of more or less famous old authors moved. Beyond their differences and even antagonisms, all of them shared to a greater or lesser extent the certainty that miscegenation was a problem for the constitution of the nation and that some solution needed to be found for it. The great turning point of this process can be situated in the 1930s when the dictatorship of the Brazilian new state and the new generation of intellectuals formed in a, in a more culturalist than racialist tradition promoted a partial refusal of the concept of race. In doing so, they began to define Brazilian modernity precisely as the overcoming of this racialism and as a valorization of a cultural heritage linked not only to whites, blacks, or indigenous people, but also, and above all, above all to mixed people. 
anyway, in times of multiculturalism. Maybe it's crucial to note that the equation identifying nation and people continued to be valid, <laughs> with the difference that from then on, the people that should found the nation would be precisely the one coming from miscegenation. And if Gilberto Freire is no doubt the great name of this intellectual moment, other authors such as Sergio Buarque de Holanda and much more recently, Darcy Ribeiro, were also part of it. In the 50s, the idea of this supposed, supposed singularity of a country where race relations were harmonious lead, led UNESCO to promote its great project about race relations in Brazil, the effects of which were quite different from what was imagined because it was in the context of this big project that Florestan Fernandes, for example, and also Roger Bastide, they worked together, uh, raised the first doubts and harsher criticisms of the culturalist models and of the so-called myth of racial democracy. This criticism, undertaken from a more sociological point of view, have advanced in the understanding of race, race relations in the country and led to more more, to more detailed studies regarding black people in Brazil. However, they also led to certain misunderstandings, such as, and I just mentioned, I'm not, it's not exhaustive, uh, the existence in Brazil of divisions by color but not by race, the fact that it is physical appearance and not origin that would de determine color, the idea that mixed people with lighter skin and greater access to income and education would necessarily be assimilated, integrated, and politically co-opted by white elites. The near consensus that the still visible hierarchical social, hierarchical racial order was only a vestige of a vanishing slave order. And finally, and most important, this idea that remains to, to, today, uh, the non-existence of a racial discrimination per se, given the supposed non-existence of an equivocal criteria, criteria for classification by color or race due to miscegenation, precisely. I, I would also like to observe that this cleavage between a culturalist and a social political perspective continues to be very much alive in Brazil today, and that it transcends the strictly academic universe. Around three years ago, uh, the sociologist Jesse de Souza, he was then the president of the Institute for Applied Economic Research, it's a state, uh, he was nominated by the then president of the republic. He published a book, has a, an interesting name. The name is The Foolishness of the Brazilian Intelligentsia, or How the Country Let Itself Be Manipulated by the Elite. This eloquent title refers precisely to the use made by the elites of the culturalist model to explain inequality in Brazil. On the other hand, and only a year ago, a judge of the Brazilian Supreme Court, nominated by the, by the same president, presented a talk in a very strange seminar in Harvard, and the talk was entitled Ethics and the Brazilian Way. Brazilian Way is a very poor translation of jeitinho, the thing we are talking that, uh, well, we can try to explain it later. But anyway, the title in English was that, Ethics and the Brazilian Way. And in this presentation, this judge, uh, try, he, 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 was, he was closely following proposals by the, anthropolo by, by the anthropologist Roberto da Mata and defending the precisely the hypothesis criticized by Gessé de Souza. That is, that inequality in Brazil is due to cultural causes and not economic or structural causes, as Gessé de Souza. So it is more or less the same debate that comes from the, the beginning of the 20th century, more or less. But you see, one guy was um, in, a, in a very important institute of the economic policies, and the other one is uh, a judge of the Brazilian Supreme Court. So you can imagine how it affects everything. Uh, in any case, something very similar to what happened to racial miscegenation and its connections with nation building also, also happened to so-called religious syncretism. For the intellectuals and Brazilian elites of the 19th century, the coexistence between a civilized white and European society with another that was primitive black and indigenous could only be a problem. How could they think about a coexistence of races or minds so intellectually and culturally unequal 
that did not threaten the harmony, order, and development of the country. Countless authors have tried to answer this question, and what seems to change between, between them is only the pessimism of the optimism of each. From Nina Rodriguez's fear of what he called the beckoning of Brazilian white civilization, with its consequent and inevitable fall into barbarism and savagery, to the confidence in the possibility of black people's progress, that is, in their whitening, and even to this apology for integration by Gilberto Freire. As the Brazilian sociologist Maria Isaura Pereira de Queiroz wrote in 1978, the central notion of all these authors is that, I quote her, integration is only possible when there is harmony between the diverse parts that constitute, constitute the whole. Harmony that for some would result from, a, from the undeniable similarity between these parts, and for others would base itself in the unequivocal domination of one superior race over the inferior races. End of quote. Uh, well, anyway, it is precisely in this uh, theoretical and political context that the interest in African religions in Brazil emerged. Uh, these religions, in the end, would inevitably be viewed as an example and proof of what Nina Rodriguez described as heterogeneity of spirits, primitive and barbarous cults at the very heart of a modern Christian scientific community. In other terms, the central question that seems to have the central question that seems to have determined the initial investigation about these religions was a sort of eugenics one, be it in its directly biological form of racial miscegenation or in the anthropological formulation of religious syncretism. Anyway, after Nina Rodriguez, uh, uh, his followers, starting already in the 1930s, they, tr they began to move away from the biological, this biological inspiration, this biological determinism, and moving towards a more culturalist or sociological point of view, and also moving from psychiatry, you know, Rodriguez was a psychiatrist, and moving from psychiatry to psychoanalysis and psychology. Uh, therefore, the particularities of the Afro-Brazilian religions uh, will no longer be sought and explained using possible biological characteristics, but using psychosociological psycho or cultural stru structures. Religious syncretism, for example, will no longer be explained by a supposed incapacity to absorb abstract Christian theology, as Nina Rodriguez did. Uh, it will be explained as a play of analogies that will make correspond Catholic saints, indigenous spirits, African divinities, and whatever one may wish. In the 40s, Melville Herskovitz went to Brazil, and, and, and this intensified this theoretical twist from medical psychiatric models towards social cultural ones. Uh, and, as I said in the beginning, from the 70s on, a new twist is announced in the form what I call micropolitical models. This does not mean uh, that more internalist analysis did not continue to be developed. Actually, it is this analysis that offers today a much broader, more solid ethnographic and conceptual base than that, than that, that, which, than that which existed some years ago for any if, one, if, 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 if anyone wants to try to return to Roger Bastide's project of a more comprehensive study of Afro-Brazilian religions, Afro-American religions, actually. Uh, I think Bastide was the first and maybe the only one uh, who raised the question of how to articulate ethnographic and sociological perspectives in the study of these religions. That is, how to bring together the need to take really seriously what the adepts say and think about their religions, and the attempt to draw a broader picture of them. It's curious that Bastidi split these perspectives in two different books. And the fact that he did it, I think, points to, 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 the, to the very difficult character of the question and to the fact that it, it has not been resolved, and this uh, perhaps not only in Afro-Brazilian uh, studies. Uh, anyway. To be criticized, celebrated, or even forgotten, religion syncretism, when not miscegenation itself, has remained one of the main themes under debate in the field of Afro-Brazilian studies. 
The point I would like to highlight here is that when addressing this issue, as Bastidi has, had already observed in 1973, and I will quote him, when addressing this issue, anthropologists were especially interested in the phenomenon of the adaptation of African candomblés to white society and to Portuguese culture. What was written about, about these themes was generally written from a point of view that subordinated the perspectives of the black people, but also those of indigenous peoples, to a third element, what Bastille called white society. And that third element structured the field of investigation to the same extent that it dominated the social political one, even in Bastille's work. Everything happens uh, as it happens too often in anthropology, as if the point of view of the state, with its problems of nation building, triumphed by imposing this false certainty that seems to last to this day, that the only legitimate form of identity is national identity. I think that at this point, we should return to a, a significantly almost forgotten proposition of the great Brazilian black thinker, Abdias do Nascimento, precisely about syncretism. Uh, 40 years ago, exactly 40 years ago, in his great book called The Genocide of the Brazilian Negro, Abdias do Nascimento drew attention to the need to distinguish between two types of syncretism. Uh, one, he says, is in a sense false or falsified. And, the, and, and his force of, of falsified because, and I quote, far from resulting from free exchange and open option, resulted from the need that African and their descendants had to protect their religious beliefs against the destroying attacks of the dominant society. End of quote. The only phenomenon, says Abdias, that really deserves the name of syncretism is then another type of syncretism which symmetrically, and I quote again, involved African cultures between themselves and between them and the religion of Brazilian indigenous people. End of quote. Uh, well, Abdias Nascimento's formulation, of course, is part of a reaction against the new expression of the so-called Brazilian racial democracy that constituted a strong ideological principle during the 20 years of the Brazilian military regime from 64 to 85. With the so-called redemocratization of the country, the tension between a new anti-racist ideology and the national ideology that denied the existence of racism did not stop growing. Its strongest point may have been in the harsh debates over affirmative action policies of an ethnic racial nature that have taken place since 2006 in Brazil, especially in the universities. Uh, and this debate uh, remain uh, one way or another to this day. Anyway, to sum up and adopting a very broad historical point of view, I believe it is possible to argue that the main theories regarding syncretism and miscegenation can be, classifying into, can be classified into no more than two perspectives. A negative one, seeing these two facts as evil things to be avoided and, of, and or fought, be it via segregation and elimination of one of the elements of the mixture, be it through a kind of guided mixture, a sort of purification, that would dissolve the supposedly inferior element into that which is thought as superior, and a sort of positive perspective, which would accept and even celebrate the heterogeneous elements as significant conquests to be preserved and developed. Now, beyond their obvious and fundamental disparities, these points of view share a conception of diversity that supposes that the ineluctable destiny of any assemblage of differences is homogeneity, whether it manifests itself by purification and cleansing or by mixing and melting. So I'll try, I, I, I try to conclude this somewhat abstract presentation, my apologies once again, uh, by underlining a point uh, which actually can be another talk, uh, a talk from which I will spare you, at least for now. Uh, the fact that a considerable number 
of more or less contemporary ethnographies show that many Afro-Brazilian and indigenous people present a quite different vision of this processes of this of this process of in, of this process of encounter and mixture. Very different when compared to what Michel Foucault used to call erudite or dominant knowledges. If I had another hour, I don't happily. I would present you in a half Fraserian style a series of examples of that vision borrowed from different places in Brazil, Brazil and in South America, the Carajá and the Quiseji in central Brazil, the Yanomami in northern Brazil and Venezuela, the Tupinambá and other indigenous people in northeastern Brazil, Afro-Brazilian religions all over the country, so-called Afro or Afro-indigenous cultural groups in Bahia and now also in Amazonia and so on. But for now, I will just say that in a way, I'm trying to follow a path opened by Peter Gao already in 1991, when he showed that interpersonal differences among the Peru in the Peruvian Amazon, uh, cannot, Amazonia cannot be entirely codified by collective differences. And that the fact that distinct categories of people existed or could have existed does not mean that each person necessarily belongs to only one or another of those categories. This means that from a Piro's point of view, mixture is not the opposite of purity. And people can perfectly, uh, perfectly well identify themselves because they are, as they say, of mixed blood. And no doubt, this can also be said about syncretism. A few years later, in 1997, Anne-Marie Lozonxi proposed what she called an interethnic inter anthropology or an interethnic perspective in order to think the relations between the Afro-Colombians and the Emberá indigenous people in the Chocó in the Colombian Pacific. To think it not in terms of their identities or even reciprocal or positive differences, but in terms of the immanent alterities, alterities that each culture already contains, what allows each one of them to draw spaces of intersection beyond mutual ignorance, open violence, or homogenizing fusion. This allowed Lozonxi to propose a return to the theme of, syncret the theme of syncretism, conceiving syncretism as a political figure, as she says, and no doubt, the same could also, can also be said of miscegenation. Anyway, I believe these visions uh, are part of a set of what I like to call counter-discourses about what we so poorly refer to as miscegenation and syncretism. These counter-discourses are character characterized precisely by not taking homogenization as the horizon for interaction between differences. That is, by not supposing that the combination of elements of diverse origins should necessarily end up either in a mere process of syncretic confusion or in a process of erosive homogenization. These counter-discourses proceed on the contrary by means of what we can call modulation of diversity, almost in Gilbert Simondon's sense. Uh, a process of continuous variation in which the coexistence of different elements may, be, uh, uh, in the coexistence of different elements, there may be a level at which they effectively combine, but also levels where they remain in some way distinct. In these counter-discourses, Different elements, which from a certain point of view may be considered different and only artificially united, from another can form a set endowed with structure, functionality, and beauty. It's a little bit like in cooking, when, as every good gourmet knows, the fact that the flavor, the flavor of a recipe is, appreci is appreciated as a whole does not abolish the pleasure of distinguish, distinguishing its various components, quite the contrary. Certainly, this way of dealing with difference is based on a very special type uh, of, uh, of philosophy or ontology, if you want. Uh, a, a type of philosophy that we might call modulatory. Uh, it's a philosophy where beings do not exist in fixed states, but always as modulations of something. That is, the fact that everything can, in a, can appear in different ways, or more precisely, 
that beings can only exist appearing in different ways. Uh, well, the question that is posed to us, that has always been posed to us, is therefore how to free what we generally call syncretism and miscegenation, but also the study of Afro-Brazilian, Afro-American religions in general, to free, to free this of the theoretical ideological domination and obfuscation, obfuscation produced by the presence of this major variable, white society, as Bastidi called it. How to overcome the nationalization and the whitening of these religions and all of the phenomena related to them. Or briefly, how can we rewrite the story of the three races in the Americas, suppressing not the historical, political, and intellectual fact of the encounter, but the whites as its major vertex? For it is more than obvious that, that, that the relations between the so-called three races of the infamous triangle cannot be the same when viewed from the point of view of the dominance or from the point of view of resistance. The only and, of course, provisional clue I can offer here is that, for me, the place of anthropology in this debate may be a controversy can only consist in our capacity to bring to the foreground the ideas and practices of the people we work with. And to return to the Malinovskian concept I rediscovered in my early work on politics, I believe we can only do this through the elaboration of ethnographic theories uh, about what we can, I like to call, uh, uh, counter-miscegenation and counter-syncretism. Theories that can only be elaborated, of course, if firmly supported by the theories of the people with whom we live as anthropologists. And in other words, and following Donna Haraway, I believe that our task is always to reaffirm the situated and symmetrical character of all knowledge, abandoning definitively the universalistic and hierarchical pretensions of dominant knowledge. As a kind of final conclusion, I'd like to add that by counter-miscegenation or counter-syncretism, I do not mean, of course, a refusal, a, refusal, a refusal of mixtures in the name of some purity. Counter here must be, must be understood in the sense of Pierre Clastre contre l'État, against the state. And an active refusal of the one and an affirmation of multiplicities. For if, as Clastre also taught, the one can only kill because it was somehow already there, the question we must ask is about the nature of the Afro-indigenous war machines mobilized to conjure miscegenation and syncretism as figures of state unification. Only in this way, I imagine, could we help to overcome the situation in which we have been entangled for so long and, it, that, and that was presented in a short and beautiful way by the extraordinary Ghanaian writer Ama Atta Aidu. The sad fact of living in a world where, I quote her, we are the victims of our history and our present, and where we cannot enjoy even our differences in peace. Thank you very much. <laughs>